This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. This podcast is sponsored by me, by my friend Jeb Blunt, my friend Mark Hunter, my friend Mike Weinberg, and Cirrus Insights, who are the sponsor of the 2017 virtual sales kickoff happening February 16th, 2017, online. For a long time, we've been delivering virtual sales kickoffs, and 2016 had 5,400 people attend our virtual sales kickoff. So we want to invite you to join us again this year with our friend Sirius Insight on February 16th at 11 a.m. Eastern time for the virtual sales kickoff. Bring yourself, bring your team, and be ready to be inspired for prospecting, productivity, and pipeline in 2017 by going to virtualsaleskickoff.com. That's virtualsaleskickoff.com. Do join us there and do go out and visit our sponsor, Serious Insight, who's made this all possible. I met Shabir Chowdhury when he reached out to me to participate in his hashtag My Difference campaign, where he asked a number of people to describe what made the biggest difference in their life. And for me, it was unconditional love. And I participated in that campaign along with people like Tom Peters and Seth Godin and a bunch of other folks. I was familiar with Shabir's work but not really familiar with Shabir. I understood his work around Six Sigma, and I'd seen some of his quality work. And you would recognize his work from companies like Caterpillar and Ford and General Motors, where he's gone in and revolutionized what they do when it comes to quality, improving their scores on just about every single metric. So he's well known in that particular world. I asked him for a copy of his new book, The Difference, because I was very interested in a summary I read of that book. And the book is amazing. It's a very short book, but it's one of those tiny books that makes an impact way beyond anything you could imagine. So I invited Shabir here to join us in the arena so he could talk about what you and I need to do to be the difference. So the question is, why did you write the book, The Difference? What caused you to write it? And then what was the mindset shift you're trying to enable or encourage? As I said that, you know, so suppose there's a two similar size of companies and one is GM, one is Ford, or maybe the Boeing and Airbus, similar industry. Suppose for the sake of discussion, both companies hired me as a consultant and used my methodology, the either the Six Sigma or process improvement methodology. And what I puzzled by that one company is getting only 5x return Another company is getting 100x return using the same process. So initial, my question was, why is that? Maybe my process is flawed. And then I literally came and I was screaming to my team and saying that, hey, maybe we are not teaching properly to our customers. Maybe our process is flawed. Then my consultant said, no, it, it cannot be. You know, Maybe we have to study the organization. So what we did, I literally went for last five years went in lots of different companies, a small, medium, large-size corporation in all types of industries and trying to study the, what is the reason that same process, utilizing the same process, same methodology, one is getting 5x, another is 100x. And that one, the answer came to me is that it is nothing to do with the process. It's about the people because the company who is getting the 100x return, those companies, majority of the people from the bottom of the you know from the janitor to all the way to the CEO level has the what I call it as a caring mindset. But the company is getting the 5x return, they are just just checking the box. They don't have the caring mindset. And even if I say that very strongly about this, because the problem is that you know caring mindset is not like because organizations are continuously changing and the new people are coming, old people are retiring, new people are coming. So unless this caring mindset is much more like a 
continuous process. So for an example, in Toyota, 20 years ago, they had 10 times more caring mindset 20 years ago versus today. When Toyota became a global company, their caring mindset, it kind of went to the tube and, and they are paying a little bit of the price for that. And this book, The Difference, is literally trying to cover and the teach to the common people that in any position, that how each of them, they can make a difference. Because I firmly believe making a difference can be any human being's responsibility. You don't need a title. You don't need to have a financial status. You can still make a difference. Very honest with you that I've seen men and women in all types of organizations where a middle manager or an engineer is making a 10 times more difference for the organization, even of their senior leaders. And, and hats off to them. And that's what is important. And that's what I try to write in this book and trying to teach, especially the younger generation, how making a difference can be each of their responsibility. That's what I'm really trying to achieve on this book. I, I would go further and say it's what we're here for. I mean, we're all here to make a difference in what, whatever role or capacity that is. Let me yes. ask you about one of the challenges in doing so. In my experience, one of the toughest competitors to beat is good enough. And even when we know that better is possible, in my experience, the status quo is so powerful in so many ways. Why is good enough such a strong force and why does it cause people to resist making the changes or prevent them from making the changes that they need to? I mean, you're talking about Toyota and we could pick any number of companies where after they've had a huge success, good enough starts to be the standard instead of what they were originally striving for. Yeah, I, I strongly feel that in the, on, the, on the contrary, if you really think about when Steve Jobs or maybe even Elon Musk in Tesla, some of those leaders, and even if you go to the, those companies when they are leaders, like when Steve Jobs was alive, if you really think about that, I think it's all about the leadership. And, and, and I think that the number one man in the company or in the nation makes a difference. I really do believe that. So uh, I, I feel that, and in fact, my book subtitle is called The Good Enough is Not Enough. And I think every single day when we wake up, we have a choice to make, irrespective of our position, we have a choice to make. The question I you have to ask is saying that, okay, whatever I've done yesterday, how I can do one thing better today? And if you have that mindset, then I don't think the good enough mindset will kick in mm -hmm. because you wanted to make a difference, right? So you think about this way. Every single day when I'm brushing my teeth after I wake up, I'm just questioning myself, whatever I have done yesterday, how can I do one thing better today? And once you do that over and over and over, if you really stick to it, then your creativity will come in and you can make a difference on a sense that even a lot of the time we take our family members for granted. And a lot of the time, our spouses, the sacrifice they make, our children, the joy they give us, our parents, the wisdom they give it to us. You know, all those things, a lot of the time, we forget to appreciate. And we literally focus on so much in our job and making money and making a better lives. But we forgot about these small things that can we really take the deep breath and say, even I might be the very busy, still I wake up and before I start my day, I might be in a, staying in a hotel room and I still call and I start my day calling my wife and say, thank you, everything you are doing for me. And I seriously, I'm, I'm really missing you right now. I know I have to go to the job, but I'm missing you. And then she said, don't worry about it. I really appreciate everything you are doing for the family and give me that energy. Then I feel that I can go back and change the world. You know, I can make what kind of more contribution I can make to my client. So I think I think the main attitude, irrespective of your profit, I think the good enough portion, we stuck to it when we are making tremendous amount of profit and we don't have that mindset or we don't have the leader to say that, hey, that is good, but how my product or service is making an impact to the society or you as an employee. If the leader doesn't say that, think about it. That's what Elon Musk is doing. He's already a billionaire. He already have SpaceX, he has Tesla, all the different companies, but it's still he's not slowing down because in his mind, he wants to make a difference to the world. So he's not thinking, and, and money becomes like a byproduct. And that is the one of the things, you know, in my book, I wrote a very profound story, which I believe changed my life completely. And I, I'm sure you read it, you know, at the end of the book, I talked about 
my grandfather. I love this a, story, by the way. So one of the things what my grandfather used to do when I was five years old, he used to just give me a, a coin and a pen. And he used to say, Shabir, choose one of the two. And every time I used to choose a coin and he used to tell me, Shabir, look, never choose the coin. I said, why? He said, because the coin, once I choose that and you spend on it, then it's gone. But the pen, once the ink is done, you can put the ink back and you can continuously create. So he, by the time I was like nine years, 10 years old, he was teaching me all the major perspective of what the pen creates. So he used to tell me, saying that, you know, think about this way. When you read a book, you know that somebody created that book by a pen and is a creation. So now you as a reader, when you read the book, you have all the power. In fact, you have better power than the author. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, what you should do if you don't like the book, you write to the author and tell the author what you didn't like about. If you like the book and you also talk about what are the things you liked about and you write to them. I said, Grandpa, you know, I'm like only seven years old, eight years old. If I write to an eminent author, they will not reply to me. He said, okay, if they don't reply, I told you the power of pen. If they don't reply, write to them again. So I said, Grandpa, if I write 100 letters to the same author, do you think that he'll reply? he doesn't reply, then what should I do? He said, write the 101st letter. So think about that. He's teaching me the never give up a strategy, okay? The perseverance during that age, which he never t- told me that even the word leadership, never. But he's teaching me some of this principle with that. And guess what? What is the outcome? It happened. By the time I was 12, I became friend with actor and actresses and some of the top laureates and some of the top intellects of the country at the age of 12. And those people whom I used to write letters to, they then started introducing me with their other friends, saying that, hey, this is one of my young buddy. He's only 12 years old. He used to, he write, wrote me a letter and I, was, I didn't reply and he didn't give up for up to 20 letters. And then I replied to him. Then I told him to, I wanted to meet with him. So by the time I became, you know, went to the college, I already developed all my leadership skill. And later on in my life, when I even, even came to America and I was writing my first book, I was not even in the field of quality at all. And I wrote my first book when I was 26 or 27 years old. I just finished my graduate degree in Michigan and wrote that book when the book, the manuscript is written. The first thing I challenged myself, I'm not going to publish this book until every single living quality gurus in the world endorse the book and refine this. So now I didn't know anybody at that time. I was not a known name. That was my first book. So guess what happened? I started writing to them. At that time, there was no email, right? So I started writing to them. And uh, long story short, every single quality guru at that time alive, even J.D. Power, Dr. Genichi Taguchi from Japan, Philip Crosby, Armand Figenbaum, all of them flew to Chicago and spent their own money to launch my book. And that book became one of the automotive industries, one of the, in fact, J.D. Power said, this book will literally impact to improve the American automaker's quality. And the book's name was the QS9000 Pioneers. All of them flew. At that time, I didn't have money to even pay them. Even their travel expense, nothing. And they came and to launch my book. And guess what? You know, I always talk about one of the things my grandfather used to tell me. Shabir, if you hang around with the pigs, you'll smell like a pig. If you hang around with some of the very successful people, guess what? People will think that you are equally successful too. If you hang around with some of the talented people, you will also, people will think that you are also talented too. But the definition of talent, it belongs to you, how you wanted to define yourself. It is all about the mindset. He didn't use the word mindset. And 20 years later, 30 years later, my grandfather passed away, but I'm writing this book and trying to teach the world about the mindset. And talking about, and when I give the keynote addresses and everything, 80% of the stories I'm sharing, what my parents taught me, what my grandfather taught me, and corporate America paying me top dollars for that. Can you imagine that? Isn't it amazing, you know? It's interesting to me how the little things really end up being the big things, and the things that people think are the big things aren't as interesting or as impactful as some of the littler things like that. Look at the story about your grandfather. I'm not going to tell anybody the toothpick story here because I want them to read it in the book, 
but yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I read it and it's, it's just such a great metaphor and a great instruction that everything matters and it's the culture and it's the people. And I want to dive into the book and I want to ask you some questions about leadership sure. and about change because that's what the book is about. It's about leadership and change and responsibility and responsibility to each other. But I want to start by talking about being straightforward. And I want to ask you, what makes it so difficult for people to be straightforward? And why do we tend to withhold what we know needs to be said? And a a good portion of the book deals with this, I guess, conundrum that we have that everybody knows that it needs to be said. What does one do about creating some sort of a fearless culture where the psychological safety exists for people to be straightforward and candid? See, like, first of all, in the book, as you know, the way I defined the caring mindset, I strongly feel that any individual at any position, if they really wanted to change themselves and practice four different things, is very tough to do. But on the other hand, is also if you have the right mindset, you can do it. So, for an example, I called it as an acronym STAR, S-T-A-R, right? And as a, a stands for straightforward and T stands for thoughtful, A stands for accountable, and R stand for result, right? So these are the four elements, and you are starting with the straightforward. So let's talk about the straightforward. I think, you know, there is a gentleman, he passed away, he's a very renowned faculty at Carnegie Mellon University, and he wrote a book called The Last Lecture, Randy Posh. Sure. And Randy's book had an amazing impact, and, you know, he that last lecture he gave in Carnegie Mellon that before he died, and he died in a very early age, like 54, 55, that age. And... He talked about something very interesting. He said, it is very interesting, the secrets you decide to reveal at the end of your life. Think about that. If you really think about today that, okay, my days are numbered, and suppose I'm diagnosed with something, I might die within two weeks or three weeks, you know, then I'll think, oh my God, my priority completely shifted. And very honest with you, each of us as a human being, irrespective of what comfort zone we leave or whatever, there is certain things that's not in our control. If tomorrow I'll be developed a disease or not, none of us know. It doesn't matter how great life we had. I've seen some friends, you know, at the age of 48, 45, had a massive heart attack, died, and they never smoked, tremendously exercised, conscious, and everything. But it still, it happened to them, right? So, first question is that, you know, we have a choice to make. Every single day when we wake up, what kind of life we want to lead? Do I want it to be very honest and blunt with everybody and talk about it? Or do we really want it to be, we lie or whatever the, at any cost if we wanted to win something, you know, and even if there is an unethical values, if we do that. So we have a choice to make, but the choice belongs to you and each of us as a, each of us as an individual. So one of the things what I noticed in companies, you know, in organizations that, a lot of the time, the straightforwardness get punished. But let me tell you, if you are a straightforward in Jack Welch's G, you are not punished. You are rewarded. Because I have personally witnessed how Jack Welch did that in GE. When he was the CEO at you know, GE, I've seen him that if he doesn't know something, he as a leader say, hey, I don't know it. Can you please explain to me? He was not having that ego that, hey, no, I don't know, you know, how can I show my ego, you know, that, you know, how, how should I show the ego to my subordinate and tell them I don't know? If he's not 110% clear, he will say he doesn't know. And once he does that, that permeates to the rest of the organization. Then the next level does a similar thing. So, and he tried his level best, he tried his level best to break down the fear culture. So he personally walked into the assembly line and talking to the workers, asking them the questions. Six months later, you know, if the worker remembered it and did what he wanted them to do, he, on the spot, he gave them the financial rewards. So, unfortunately, in a straightforwardness, normally what I feel, people does, do not become a straightforward because they have tremendous amount of fear and being afraid of getting punished. That is one reason. The other reason is that a lot of the time they have lost, especially in the senior leadership level, that is in the kind of a lower middle management to the lower level. In the higher leadership level, I think it is a lot of the time a straightforwardness does not come because of the pride and ego. So let, let me handle a little bit of the, on the fear perspective. If you really, I, I really wonder regarding that Volkswagen when they cheated about this, installing the software of 11 million diesel cars 
deliberately they program the software so that it gives the wrong data. I'm sure somebody in the company knew about that and made the decision, right? Right. And when when they made the decision, that decision may not been have been made by there's two reasons. One of them is that fear of not making the EPA requirement. Okay. Another thing is the greed. You know, they kind of felt that hey, there's no way that they can figure it out and we can make some money. The other issue is that they also have the pride saying that, hey, you know what? We are so talented engineers. There's no way any government can catch us because we are, we'll outsmart them. And that whole idea of developing that outsmartness to anybody else, I always believe in if you have the right mindset and the right karma, somebody is always watching you. Even though you might be doing something good, you may not get instant results, but trust me, at the end of the day, you will get the result maybe two years or 10 years later. And the results can be, you have a brilliant family life. It cannot be tangible that you earn more money or you get in another promotion. I've seen a lot of people, even in a middle manager level, so happy life. And I've seen on the other hand, a lot of senior leaders making millions of dollars have a completely miserable life, right? So the choice you have to make, you know, like for example, in my life, I always tried my level best to lead a very straightforward life. And in consulting, it's very difficult to lead a straightforward life. What I mean by that, I need to tell my client that, hey, do you know what? You need to do this. And if you don't do this, sorry, you know, if you don't listen to me, I cannot help you. Thank you very much. I don't need your money. I wanted to tell you a straight cut. Now, the message I'm delivering is so ugly message. And I know sometimes the leaders are so upset, they may throw me out of the window. That's okay. Because at the end of the day, I may lose that multi-million dollar contract, but I still stick to my gun because the reason they are hiring me to tell them the blunt truth. And if I don't do that, shame on me, right? And now, a lot of the time, consulting firm, what they do, they normally come in and they think, no, they wanted to give a nice chart, nice, you know, what the client wants to hear. And the problem is that at the end of the day, that my client became like a 10-year, 15-year client. Why? Because they know Shubir will tell us the truth. Even at our worst, he will tell us the truth. So I kind of feel that when the people are straightforward, the results ultimately will pay off. But I think if the senior leaders on the top does not encourage the having the straightforwardness culture to be rewarded culture, then it will not happen. I give you a very tiny example, you know, like I'm sure you may heard of this it, Fortune magazine and everybody wrote about it. Uh, Alan Mulally, when he first came in as a Ford CEO, on the first day when every leaders are presenting, all of his direct reports are presenting, everybody is reporting green. Everything is green. So Alan asked a very simple question. Hey, you know, you guys hired me out of the industry. I'm not from automotive industry. I'm coming from aerospace industry. Hired me to fix you guys. Now, it looks like all of you have everything green. Now, rule number one, I wanted to let you know that if you tell me red, I can fix it. All of us collectively can fix it, okay? But if you don't tell me red, we may not be able to fix it, right? Then I'll be, what is the point for me to come over here, you know, as a CEO? Now, this is the first rule. First rule is if anybody reports to me, that had anything red, I'll appreciate it. I'm not going to punish you. And that is my promise. So the first person who volunteered to release the red was the current CEO, who became later on, he became the CEO, and Mark Phil. He's the first one raised the hand and he said, I have something to red. And then what Alan did, Alan said, give him a big hand. Thank you, Mark, for sharing us red. Now, guess what? Two weeks later, everything is red. <laughs> now, once everything is red, then Alan with his leadership team can figure it out what we can do to turn this red into green, right? So think about the how he has started the culture change in Ford. That's psychological and, and safety, it, right? That you're not going to be punished. Yes. In fact, you're going to be rewarded yes. and applauded yes. so we can finally deal with this. And, you know, yes. Ford did really well, and they were the only company that didn't need to take money from the government when we had the crash, probably yes. due to that kind of leadership, the candor. Yes. And But the thing is that at the end of the day, though, you know, I also feel that if you think that you are getting punished in a culture, but if you firmly believe that you want it to be a straightforward and you want it to be honest and blunt, if that company is not your company, 
Can you change your job? Go to another company who has the straightforward culture. In the interview process, talk about them. See, and, and I talk about any individual at any position should ask two questions about developing a straightforwardness. Number one, what do you lose when you or the people around you seek the easy way out because you are afraid to be a straightforward? And number two, are you being a straightforward and speaking up now? And why wait until it is too late? In the chapter of the book, I, in the straightforward, you know, I, I wrote an article, I wrote a story about, by the way, every single story I wrote in the book is a 100% true story. Only thing I did, I changed the name of every person. And obviously, I did not disclose the client's name, right? But every one of them is a personal story as well as the organizational story is 100% true story. This is literally my own kind of a professional life as well as personal life type of biography, you know, literally, and you read it, you know. So I talk about a person in one of the top corporation, Nick, I, I gave him the name Nick, and how he got, when he, his last position, when he died at the age of 52, he was a chief purchasing officer of a large multi-billion dollar company, okay, Fortune 100 company. And his style of leadership was at any cost, he never gave the credit to his subordinates, and at any cost, he has to. And brilliant man. And then when he suddenly diagnosed with this cancer, and doctor gave him only two weeks to leave, and I've been mentoring for 10 years, he literally came to, you know, invited me in his office, and when he broke the story, he was saying that, Shavir, can you teach me one thing? I don't need anything in my life. I need only forgiveness from the people. So everything Nick did, Last six months, of, and he ultimately survived for six more months. Everything he did was asking the forgiveness from the people he knew the credit was due. Now, I really wonder, you know, if he did not live that life, I think he should have been contributed 10 times more to the society, and he, could, he should not have been tied with, a, with that sadness that what he has done for the last 20 years of his career, you know. And, and, and that is the question you have to ask, you know, and that is... I think it's very, very critical. And, and I don't want to give the whole story, but his story had a huge amount of impact. And in fact, when he passed away, believe it or not, last six months of his work, he had the highest number of people attended in his funeral. And everybody cried. Even the people and, he did not take care of, you know? And that's, I think, so much of that is because we can see in that story ourselves, right? I mean, yes. the, we, we can see our own human flaws because he was human. It's such a great and powerful story. Let me move us into thoughtful because I want to touch on each of these things. They're so critical sure. and so important. I want to just take a quick touch. And the book is so easy to read. Everyone should read it. And the stories just, they pull you right through the book very quickly. But I'm just thinking about thoughtfulness. And it starts with the story on the plane with the, the old man that needs a glass of water. And it's something so simple and you read it. And so many people follow the process and the rules to the detriment of people. And I think that part of your book is about the fact that process by itself and the rules by themselves aren't enough to generate those yeah. results. But I, I want to yeah, talk yeah. about, I'll share just a quick story. I write a newsletter every Sunday that goes to about 80,000 people. And a few months ago, I wrote a story. I was leaving Starbucks with my wife and one of my daughters in the car. And there was a homeless guy standing in the rain. And I had my daughter hand me my wallet and I had my wife call him over and we gave him $40. That was all the cash I had in my wallet. I'd just gotten back from a trip. And I saw him take the money and he was embarrassed to take the money. And he put his head down because he didn't want us to see him look at how much money we gave him. And when he turned around, he was crying and he said, oh my God, I can go home. I can go home. And he took off running behind the car. And my young daughter said, how do you know he's not going to use it on drugs or alcohol? And I said, well, I don't know that, but that wasn't why I was giving him the money. I was giving him the money because I had the ability to give him the money and try to do something to help him. And I was on a call with a client and he had just read my book and they were talking about my book. And he went back to this and said, after reading that, he's at a truck stop and there was a homeless man with his dog sitting outside of the truck stop. And he insisted that the man take money and he tried to refuse to take the money and he stayed with this homeless person's dog so this guy could go into the truck stop and shower and eat and so of all the things that i've written the the story about the responsibility that we have to help others and this this thoughtfulness that you describe 
it's really a kind of empathy and action. But what I want to tell you is what strikes me about this is that I don't think we talk enough about the benefit of being other-oriented and being thoughtful and how the benefits accrue to those of us that aren't self-oriented, that there's there's no scarcity. And the more that we're other-oriented and the more thoughtful we are, the easier it is to get things done. Can you speak to that? Yes. So think about, you know, when I talk about the word thoughtfulness, basically your example is the profound example that exactly see what when your daughter asked you why you did that, he may use it for drug or whatever. You said, hey, it doesn't matter. At that moment, you felt this is the right thing to do, right? You care about them. And what is the outcome? So when you do the, you know, you, when you are thoughtful, you don't look for outcome. You just look for your caring and your showing and you will get some positive energy from it. And that's it. Your own feeling. What is the outcome? Is it going to, in return, do you feel that he will not bag in the street or anything? No, he didn't expect anything. You feel good about it. And that's it. The problem is in organizational setting or in the community setting, I think I kind of feel that nowadays, especially in the social media generation, we are living in much more like a fake culture, fake yeah. society, so, like fake. So that means we are trying to show off so many things, right? How good we are, right? That's what we are in competing for. Even on the Facebook has a nickname called Facebook, right? Right. And it's, it's very sad, you know, about that. But in thoughtful, when I talk about the word thoughtful, I mentioned about, I talked about the attentiveness to others, not for you, to others, anybody, right? Even the thoughtful can start at your home, right? Or considerate or unselfish or helpful. So even how many times, like I, I can give you an example. I recently gave the manuscript of the book because the book is not out yet. So gave the manuscript of the book, one of the senior leader of the Fortune 10 company, right? He's the number two person in the company. And he read the book and he was so excited. He flew me in. He wants to spend an hour, wants to talk about the book and everything. So the, you know, so the first question I asked him, I said, hey, you know, did you take a vacation? And he said, yes. And then I said, where did you go? And then he nonstop talked for 15 minutes <laughs> about his vacation, how much fun he had in the vacation. And after I listening to it for 15 minutes, okay, listening to all of his vacations, a story, I asked him a question. I said, hey, how many people work for you? So he said, direct report, I have like almost 20, but my organization is more than seven or 8,000 people. I said, oh, great. Okay. So I said, let me ask you a question. I said, I asked you about your vacation. Normally, I expected you an answer not more than two minutes on that topic. But you gave for nonstop for 15 minutes that looks like you had a blast on this vacation and you needed that vacation badly. But after you came back, did you even spend two minutes? Forget about 15 minutes. You spent 15 minutes with me. Did you spend two minutes of your direct reports of the positive energy you gave me about your vacation? That is story with your direct reports. He said, what are you talking about? That is not our culture. I said, excuse me. I said, you know what? You missed my book's point. Because you are talking about which I Then I asked the next question. I said, let me ask you the next question. I said, suppose if you are dropped dead right now, do you think that I'll come to your funeral? What do you think? I asked him. What do you think? I said, I live in Los Angeles and you are in Michigan. Do you think I'll uh, come in the funeral? And he said, Shvir, that, be- that answer belongs to you. I said, I said okay, for, uh, that answer belongs to me and I'll come back there. How about this? If you die, like a, suppose you are dropped dead, or like a, if I'm dropped dead, are you going to come to my funeral? He said, well, that depends. If, if I don't have another corporate assignment, then I may come, but it is a big me because I don't think you and I have a professional relationship. We don't. I said, thank you for your straightforwardness and giving me the true answer. I said, guess what? I'll do the same, even though I make money from you, but still I'll do the same because we don't have enough relationship that if I have another thing came up, I may not come to your funeral all the way for five-hour flight. I said, right? He said, yes. I said, guess what? Those 20 people who directly report to you, if you drop dead, do you think that they will come to your funeral? He said, yes. I said, then, why you are spending 15 minutes of your vacation time story with me and giving me that positive energy rather than, because I'm an important person, I'm a best-selling author, that's why? I said, look, you are doing something fake. Life is not about fakeness. And he was shocked. I said, look, you missed the point of the book. So I'm trying to teach you. You wanted to change? Look, as soon as I leave, I said, now you cancel the meeting for me. You go right now and I spend time with them and talk about your vacation. 
and you don't need to tell them. Should be Chaudhary told you to discuss my vacation. I said, give that positive energy because you are thoughtful to them. Now, guess what? And when they have a vacation, let them talk to you about it. Those 10 minutes matter because that is the only way we'll earn their loyalty. That is the way they will give extra mileage for you because you care. That matters. Why do we underestimate that thoughtfulness and that caring in commercial relationships? In our other relationships, we're sometimes thoughtless too. But in commercial, it's almost like you say, well, this is business me and business me is different than personal me. When all of the results that we generate through others come from the relationships that we have. As you know, one of the, in the book, I'm sure you, you have seen it, like I tried my level best. I kind of become a firm believer. If you don't have a good family life or good life inside of the family at home or within your community, I don't think you can be as successful even in business. You might have a very successful, but you might have a lot of emptiness. So how you define success, you may not have the complete fulfillment. So even some of the things you are talking about in business, the problem is that as soon as you go to the business setting, we kind of feel that we don't think about that we are there also a bunch of people. We, we also think that we need to prove ourselves we are the best. The sad part is that people don't understand that your bluntness, your straightforwardness, your, your honesty, your integrity, your caring, your thoughtfulness, those are the things other parties, other people you interact in, in commercial setting will also equally value because that's what they, why you tell me why Mother Teresa home, if you visit in Calcutta, why every single religion of the world is still go there and pray, including Muslim, Hindu, all the different religion, even Muslims are praying of a Christian non-stone. Why? Why even a Calcutta street beggar only give him less than a one cent, US one cent, and go there and donate in front of the tomb of Mother Teresa. Tell me, even in this tough of world we are living right now, with a hatred of, you know, different religious hatred and this and that, right? It's still why that happened. Even right now, it's happening. As we speak with you right now, somebody in Calcutta, in Mother Teresa's tomb, a Muslim is donating money. Why? Think about that, right? The reason is that because we as a human being, God gave us some kind of power internally that we are reluctant to use, reluctant to use in front of the commercial setting or because we, we have a preconceived mindset of how great we are. When I go, do you, do you know, if you ask, like, think about this, all over the world, I'm becoming, you know, as a, one of the leading management thinker and giving advice to a lot of CEOs and all. Guess what, where I go for learning? Do you know where I go? I just go there. Some of these, like, for an example, one of the area I could not figure it out. I think our next generation, I'm 49 years old, our next generation, our children generation, they are so good in social media, right? And I wanted to learn from them. So every day when I wake up, I feel I don't know anything yet. I'm still discovering. I didn't give enough to the people, uh, to the world, right? So as soon as I have that, I, I think the, I always feel that our disease is, human beings' disease is that we pretend we know everything. But I don't think you know, if you pretend every day you wake up and you feel that you don't know anything and you wanted to give to the others, life will be good. Life will be completely changed. And very honest to you, the successful, very superly successful people I've seen, that's what they do. The fulfilled people. See, my definition of success is not only financial success. My definition of success is that who has the most fulfilled life. I've seen some middle manager or an engineer have a brilliant, fulfilled life. In my opinion, that is a very successful life. The person, the Nick I talked about, who is dying, even though he is the chief purchasing officer of a Fortune 100 company, is still in his deathbed. He was thinking he was a complete failure. In my definition, that is not a success. Let and me go back to something you said, because I want to take us into accountability. And we don't recognize the immense power that we have in the ability to make the choice to act. And in this chapter, you've got a recipe for accountability that, that starts with being aware and then taking personal responsibility. And then there's a couple other steps, but this making a choice and a decision to act is what we are gifted with. We have the power to choose what to do. And we can start thinking through the consequences and expectations, but what is it that gives people the willingness to exercise that power? And to take so, responsibility. And, and Mother Teresa wrote, you know, said something called, do not wait for leaders, do it alone, right? What she meant by that is that accountability, you know, 
is a personal responsibility. And when I talk about the personal responsibility, I talk about five things. Number one, you have to be aware of that something needs to be done. Okay. So if you want it to be accountable, you have to think about that accountability that, you know, first of all, you have to aware yourself that something needs to be done. And number two is um, taking the personal responsibility. Something needs to be done by others. You have a choice. Hey, this is not my problem. If you see a problem, you fix it immediately. For an example, I gave an example about in a plant, there is a light bulb is, is there. And they talked about when the vice president is visiting and he saw light bulb is out. And, and what he did, he talked with them and nothing changed. And ultimately, what he did is that he just went there himself. He knows the process will take them two days to change the light bulb. He just went there and he immediately on the spot, he changed it. So he took that personal responsibility. I talked about a story about a girl, 13-year-old girl from Illinois. In 2013, her name is Trisha Prabhu. A 13-year-old, she suddenly read in the newspaper or in social media, an 11-year-old Florida girl is bullied by the classmate and committed suicide. So then she was wondering, when she was coming home, she was wondering how she can stop this, how she can stop this bullying in the social media across America. And then she went into her own, she didn't go for any funding, nothing. She just went on, his, on her own and started researching. And on the research, because she took that as a personally, as a personal responsibility. Then what she ultimately did, she felt that 90, like based on her research, she find out 90 percent of the adolescents normally if you tell them if you tell them to stop not do that if you tell them stop don't do that believe it or not 90 percent stop it so then she came up with an app called rethink and on the app she developed an app called rethink and after she introduced that app you cannot even believe 93 percent 93 percent who use that app the adolescents who use that app decided not to post a heartful message after they had opportunity to rethink. So that means, and the app is called the rethink. We should so give it to adults. A, yes. Think about it. Exactly. Think about it. Now, Trisha is only 13 years old. She took that as a personal responsibility. First of all, she aware of the problem. Then she took the personal responsibility. And then the third thing she did is the making the choice to decision of acting of that to solve the problem. And number four, then she's thinking about deeply about the potential consequences and whatever the choice she made. And then she makes sure she had a high expectation because she doesn't want, she knew she doesn't want to solve only the problem of those her in her school. She wants to solve the problem for the rest of the world, right? So she think about the whole age group. And now you are talking about even using the app for adults. So I think accountability part is very important on a sense that are you taking that as a personal responsibility? Any job. So I, I gave you another example in Detroit Metro Airport in one of the men's washroom. I went there and I was shocked. It looks like as if it's a five-star hotel lobby. Completely clean. Any person using on the spot, he was automatically this person who's in charge of the washroom. He's immediately one drop of water, immediately wiping it out. So I just stopped and asked the guy, hey, this looks like amazing. What is going on? And he looked at me and he said, sir, this is my washroom. This is my washroom. My mama taught me <laughs> that anything you do in your life, you have to do it 110%, right? Irrespective of whatever. So this is my job. And to think about a janitor is doing this, right? Now, he told me, so I told him, I said, hey, next time I visit, I'm going to visit this one. He said, sir, my ship changes. I may not in this location. I might be in another washroom at that time. So if this washroom is not that good, Good at that time, you remember that I'm not working over here. But if you come to my washroom, you will know and how proud he is, right? The work he's doing. That means he feels in his job, he's accountable for it. So if you remember that whole thing about the do not wait for leaders, do it alone. Like I, I wrote another story there, you know, in the book is about my own. One of the teacher wrote a very, very harsh email to my daughter, right? And it's not that, you know, teacher writing a tough email, that doesn't bother me. But the language he used is not a teacher should not demonstrate that. So the first thing what I did, normally when you have that type of you know, stuff, what do you do? You normally go there, our immediate reaction is that you're mad, and then you write a strong letter to the teacher or email to the teacher. I didn't do that. What I've done, I said, no, this school has some values, right? They have like some core values, five core values. So I say, 
this is a complete violation of that core values. So my main, main question is that I said, if the teacher does not demonstrate the core values, how the heck a student will demonstrate core value? Even though core value became like a slogan. And I think this is a direct correlation with any of the organization. All organization has core values, but it's not about the core values putting a big poster. It's about, are you really making yourself accountable and practicing it? And if somebody doesn't practice it, you should take an action on it. So think about it, what I have done. I went in, I met with the development officer of the school, and I talked with the school officer and asked the question. I said, hey, first question is that I completely take that name of the teacher, my everything from the email, but I got the content of the email, and I gave that content to the development officer and just told him, I said, can you please read this email? Do you think that this type of incident happened in your school? And he looked at me and said, absolutely not. I said, really? I said, do you think there is a violation of core values of your school? He said, yes. So I said, guess what? This happened by a teacher in your school, and I'm not going to tell you the teacher's name because it's nothing to do with the teacher's name because maybe he's having a bad day on that day. But I wanted to understand the main problem is that when is the last time the teachers got the training on core values? Teachers got the training on core values. He said, oh, I don't remember. I said, how about the staffs? He said, I don't know. I don't remember when I took one. He said, we normally teach to the students. This is not the thing we take. I said, hey, guess what? I'm going to pay you the money in the school. And I said, let's talk to the headmaster. And then we met with the headmaster. And then we felt that I said, I'm going to pay the money. You hire one of the America's top instructor who can teach to the school teachers and staffs for one full day in a weekend about school score values and why it is important and how they should practice it first. And these are all adults because without that, and I'll pay for it, whatever it is. So guess what? Ultimately, they have done that, right? And I was, obviously, I was also in attendance. It's all about the adults. I didn't embarrass that teacher or whatever. But one of the things what I insisted the speaker to come in to spend the time with before he conduct the session, to spend the school's time to review all the complaints the school had from the parents, from the students, all of them, and beat her, his speech or his training session based on those examples. So the teachers and the staff will know these are the things they have done it. You don't have to point who did what. It is not about the person. It's about the system, right? So I, I feel that, you know, regarding the accountability, that example I gave you, either Trisha or what I have done on that particular school, I think each of us, we have to figure it out that does the accountability belongs to me? Rather than seeing a problem, if you are drawing your salary or your compensation from a company, irrespective of your position, if you know something is going on is not right, and you have a choice to make, hey, should I, it is my company, my paycheck coming from here. If this one doesn't, I didn't fix it, maybe my company will pay a price for it. Should I at least help? Should I become thoughtful and give a hand and raise that issue and become a straightforward about it and try to give a hand there? That belongs to us. So think about this way. I really wondered when the, how many people at General Motors knew about the ignition fault switch, the ignition switch faulty ignition switch that post hazard and dismissed that concern at that time. Or how many people at Volkswagen knew that eventually they would get caught cheating in the infamous emission test. I really wondered that. So that would be because they didn't think that even though they know about it, but they just put it under the rug rather than think that, no, this is my job and I should take the personal responsibility. What I love about all those stories is that, you know, the person who appears to have no power by taking action has power. Let me get to the R resolve because I want to make sure we've taken people through this and I hope we've given them enough here that they want to go out and and read this and, and share it. I think it's a really, really good book to share. It's small too. It's a, I want to call it a two hour read. I've told yeah, my yeah. children that the greatest adversity that they've had in their life is a lack of adversity. And mm. how much does yeah. poverty and adversity play into your personal mindset? This is a brilliant question. Very honest with you that, you know, I feel the same way, even for me, you know, because my children, it is not their fault. They are born in a very luxury life. They, I they, came they from, don't know your adversity. No. And you've they, made they, sure even that. Though, even though I'm talking about it, but it's not that they didn't experience it. Right. right. Like, think about it. When I was in seventh grade, eight, until even the seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, even in that time, you cannot even believe during the rainy season. Think about this way. I was walking on the street and I can get inside of a manhole and die, okay? 
and walking on the street and going to the school and half of my body is under the water and going to the school and putting the all the books on the top of my head that is the way i went to school can you imagine that that is the way i live my life <laughs> they don't have that what same that? experience going to school every day <laughs> think about that right think about that right and i think that is a brilliant question and i i talked about some of that i think only way you can show to your children or my children what we do we normally take them every year even we visit every year in india and we do some voluntary work there but apart from that even in greater los, los angeles we do some as a family we do a lot of voluntary work try to help them and expose them so that is the one way we can expose but i think at the end of the day you know that kind of when i talk about the word resolve i feel whatever we do even i tell my daughter the same thing i said look i'm a management consultant doesn't mean that you have to be a management consultant and you have to follow your own passion so i think the word passion is so important and a lot of the time it is kind of overused word but i sincerely mean it you know what i've seen from my own experience is that once i have the passion of whatever i want to do from that passion then my determination and perseverance come because without the passion the determination and perseverance may not come right? right and once you have the passion to solve a problem or improve a situation your determination and perseverance kicks in so you think about that you know when i came in my own life's example like when i came in america in august of 1991 to attend a graduate school the teacher told me like the advisor told me hey you come two weeks early then i can work with you and then we'll give an scholarship and blah 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 and based on that i came with the hope and as soon as i land as soon as i went to him first thing he said hey sorry you know yes you came two weeks early but unfortunately we gave that scholarship to somebody else and you are not an american citizen and we gave it to somebody else blah 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 i said fine i couldn't even and imagine I was, when I was reading it i mean you fly from india how many hours 56 hours it took me like because i took the cheapest <laughs> ticket right so i at that time i didn't even know i didn't care if i have to touch the airport it took me 55 hours <laughs> i'm just thinking about this so you're elated the whole flight over that you're coming to america you're going to get this right. new life you've already got right. a scholarship you've got a job right. everything's going to be perfect and you get here right. and you find out you don't have the scholarship or the job right, <laughs> right. and and That's... i have zero i have only 200 even i have to go to a bank for 200 loan and they decline you know then what i've done was so i then i i have 200 short again if i so everything so i bought whatever the money i had i used to work in apple computers in bangladesh and for two years whatever money i had i brought it and then i cannot even register for my class forget about my food right even for register and if i don't register for the class i may lose my legal status in the us right so i have to take six credit at that time the rule was six credit i have to take so anyway what i did i begged i cried i gave my engineering certificate and trying to explain to him you know i graduated from iit which is the number one school in asia and blah 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 all these thing nothing this professor said no sorry then what i did from there i didn't stop i went every single department every single department so even think about it landing in america i'm going to a journalism department and saying how i can make a difference in journalism right <laughs> can you imagine that and guess what some of the faculty they throw me out some of the you know i was simulated i was but suddenly one faculty mathematics department after like visiting like 10 or 20 you know different departments one mathematics department <laughs> professor said you need to meet with this professor and then long story short that i end up with getting and i wrote in the you know went through the interview process and everything else and and i was selected by dow chemical and they paid my whole master's degree for my education completely paid for and and i was got a fellowship now and guess what i did my degree in industrial management but i got the fellowship to do the research on polymer engineering and they asked me the question in the, in the interview that hey you know you don't have a chemical engineering degree how you'll do the research on polymer guess what once the interview because i had two days time those two days in the library in michigan i literally did not take shower nothing no food no brushing teeth nothing for two days non stop i was studying everything about polymer so when i went in front of the interview they are completely blown away what the heck this guy is talking about how the heck he knows all these things about polymer and i told them the straight forward i told them last two days i learned that's what i told them i said i have a degree in rsp engineering but i need it so badly so again you know the the point is that 
because when I came over here, I still have that American dream. And I, I kind of feel sad in America nowadays. A lot of people talk about American dreams are dead and everything else. And I believe that if American dream is dead, ever become dead, I think America is done. We cannot afford to. Because this is anything I dream. In fact, by the way, just so that you know, I don't know how long they will continue. I got one of the highest recognition from the Homeland Security for, it's called the Outstanding American by Choice. And at that time, I gave a talk. And at that time, I, I said a statement in my speech. I talked about whatever I dream in America, America fulfilled everything, every one of the dream. Whatever I dream in America, America fulfilled every single dream. I said that. Guess what? Nowadays, anywhere around the U.S., whenever the citizens take their citizenship oath, they show that quote. They, <laughs> literally, they show that quote with Shubhi Chaudhary from Bangladesh, right? And the reason it is because think about this. I went to a bag of $200 shortage that I cannot register for my class. And this lady rejected me. And then she said, I have to bring a collateral. I said, ma'am, I just landed yesterday. I don't have any money. What are you talking about? I don't know anybody. I'm the first person ever in my, in my dad's generation, in my mom's side that came to America. I don't have any, I don't know anybody. So then I looked at her, I said, how about this? How about you? Why don't you become a collateral? She looked at me. She said, what do you mean by that? I said, that's what I mean. You become my collateral because you are the bank manager. And she's a white American lady, Midwestern lady, right? And I still remember her. She's the only person attended my graduation ceremony because I still remember her <laughs> because that $200 loan, she, because guess what I did? Still, she rejected. After half an hour of my plea crying, she rejected $200 loan. Then what I did was, when I was leaving, I just looked at her and I said, ma'am, let me tell you something. If I was your brother or if I was your husband or somebody you, you love the most, you would have been declined me with this $200 loan. I promise you I'm going to return you. And I, may, I will get in a scholarship. You mark my word, I will. Because by the time I got the Dow Fellowship, it is almost three or four weeks, right? So I was still shortage to $200 to register. So guess what happened? She called me the next day morning, 6 a.m. She called me and said, Shweer, I could not sleep all night last night. I've been <laughs> thinking about you. I'll be your collateral. Come to the back. Come to the back. Think about this. Think about the humanity, right? Caring. And I still, I remember. And the caring. It's just caring. Yes. Right. And the thoughtfulness, right? So think about that. Now, today, being a management guru all over the world, I'm talking about her story, right? Think about that, right? I, and I, she didn't return. It is not her own money. She literally, it is the bank's money, right? She basically became my collateral to give that $200 loan. So, you know, that is the same story you talk about, that $40. So I feel if you have the passion to resolve something, you can. The question is that, do you have that passion? And in fact, I talked about even my parents' visa, how that got denied. And then I didn't talk in details about it. Even Warren Christopher has to intervene and call me from Bosnia to intervene to get my visa, parents' visa and, and brought them to U.S. Think this about that. The... Every single of that incident is a 100% true story. And the, and the congressman was at that time was Jim Barsha. So and I feel that we need to have more positive energy of changing the world, changing America, believing in America, irrespective of, all, of the challenges we face. Because it is in your mind, it is in your hand. And I can tell you a story after a story that, you know, as I say, anything I dream, I achieved. Like, think about it. In the last 14 books, I wrote in process improvement, right? Suddenly I decided, no, I wanted to be in the, and I'm not an expert on the people perspective, right? Now I'm writing that book on this side. And I don't know for sure. As you know, there's no guarantee. But I'm pretty confident that this will become a bestseller too. Think I'm, about it. I'm hoping that this is your best-selling book. And I want to thank you for giving us your time. And I want to tell people where they find you and where they find the book. Where's the best place for people to find you and connect with you? My first name is Shubir, S-U-B-I-R. And my last name is Chaudhry, C-H-O-W-D-H-U-R-Y. And they can, shubirchaudhry.com. They can go to my website and they can email me. And if they just Google my name, they'll pretty much find me. Or they can tweet me at Shubit Chaudhary. They can tweet me. And they can reach me. Anybody can send me an email. Obviously, I travel very extensively, but I try my level best to respond every single emails I receive. I personally respond. 
and the book will be available you know Amazon and all the bookstores nationwide we're going to put the links there thank you so much for being here oh my pleasure thank you so much for hosting me That was Shabir Chowdhury with The Difference, and you can find him at shabirchowdhury.com. We'll put that in the show notes so you have an easy time finding him. I'm Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I write and publish daily. And when you go there, do sign up for my Sunday newsletter, my best and favorite piece of work every week. It's one big idea you can use to hit the ground running on Monday morning. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I now publish a daily video blog, usually three to five minutes with one idea that you can put to work immediately. I'm Anthony Anarino. Thanks for being here. If you like the show, do go out to iTunes and give it a rating and a review. That helps me share this message with other people. And until then, I will see you next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.